Welcome to another edition of Breakfast Buzz. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. On September 19th, Azerbaijani forces began attacking the long-disputed Armenian enclave within Azerbaijan. Within 24 hours, Azerbaijan had established full control over the territory, triggering a mass exodus of Karabakhis from their homeland, amid fears of ethnic cleansing at the hands of the Azerbaijani military. This latest violence in the long-running conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh raises numerous questions, including about Russia's role and influence in the region. Russia has long held the role of Armenia's security guarantor, including managing tensions around Nagorno-Karabakh, but did very little to step in to support Yerevan, possibly in part because of Armenian Prime Minister Pashinyan's warming ties with the West. There are also questions about where the conflict goes from here. This week, Turkish President Erdogan visited Azerbaijan's President Aliyev in the Azerbaijani enclave of Nakhchivan, which raises ominous questions about Baku's objectives, as Baku has long wanted to link the territory to the rest of the country. To discuss these developments and more and their significance for the region, uh, we're very pleased to have Phil Reeker and Tom DeWall with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Andrea. Um, as our guests know, we'll do brief bios. So Ambassador Phil Rieger is a partner and lead of the Europe and Eurasia practice at the Albridge Stone, Albright Stonebridge Group. He has more than 30 years of diplomatic experience, including previous roles of, as acting assistant secretary of state for Europe and Eurasia, and as the secretary of state senior advisor for caucus negotiations. And Tom DeWall is a senior fellow with Carnegie Europe specializing in Eastern Europe and the Caucasus. He is the author of numerous publications about the region, including his authoritative book on the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, Black Garden, Armenia and Azerbaijan through peace and war. Okay. I was trying to figure out a way to get into this conversation. And I know that this is clearly a conflict, longstanding conflict with deep, deep roots. But Tom, maybe I can start with you and ask if you can pick up the story maybe in 2020 when Azerbaijan restarted conflict. And I think that conflict killed more than 7,000 in just six weeks of fighting um, and that saw Baku come out on top. Can you give us a little bit of a summary for listeners so that they understand kind of the context and what has been happening in the run up and how we basically got to this latest crisis? Right. Thanks, Andrea. I mean, the question always in this conflict is, where do you begin? You believe begin maybe in 1921, which is when Nagorno-Karabakh was, was placed inside Soviet Azerbaijan with an Armenian majority. Or do, or do you start with 1988, which is when the uh, Karabakh Armenians, when in the Gorbachev period, you know, were petitioning to leave Soviet, Soviet Azerbaijan uh, and join Soviet Armenia and were told no, no borders do not get redrawn. Um, and and then the conflict escalated, and then obviously, um, when Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, became independent and internal Soviet borders suddenly became international borders, uh, as far as the Karabakhis were concerned, and not only them, of course, they were they were left stranded on the wrong side of an international border, and and you know became overnight became international separatists, and, and then we had the war of the nineteen nineties won by the Armenian side at great cost to both sides, but with the outcome being an Armenian victory and these huge swathes, um, not just Karabakh itself, but these huge swathes of Azerbaijani territory becoming under Armenian control. So Azerbaijan suddenly becoming the, after both sides had, had fought it out, becoming the principal victim. Uh, and then the 1994 ceasefire. Um, so if we... 2020 is the year in which Azerbaijan, um, having, you know, earned huge revenues from oil and gas and rebuilt its military and got um, pledges of support, well, not active, not just pledges, but active military support from Turkey, and some degree of compliance for, from Russia went back to war, and maybe performed better than anyone had expected, perhaps even themselves. And, and basically, the Armenian military uh, collapsed, and, and they recovered uh, on the battlefield, uh, not uh, everything they'd lost in, in the 1990s, and even a bit more, including a bit of Armenian-controlled Karabakh. So since that point, really, um, Karabakh 
was isolated. It had just a, the, this last-minute Russian peacekeeping force, which was deployed there in November 2020. They, they, these were its protectors. They're, they're by inserting Russia as the kind of key pivot uh, and, and determining factor in outcomes on the ground. Um, but there's just one corridor which the Russian peacekeepers were supposed to keep open, the Lachin Corridor, connecting uh, Karabakh to Armenia for for everything, for its its supplies um, and uh, and its gas pipeline as well. And then I guess the next key point is um, obviously the start of the Ukraine war, where Russia's uh, Russia weakens, uh, the peacekeepers uh, are depleted. Um, and Azerbaijan, you know, senses this weakness uh, and last December um, blocks the Lachin Corridor and sure, sure enough, the Russian peacekeepers don't intervene. And from that point, I think all, there's just been this feeling of doom around this conflict that, that the writing was on the wall, um, that Azerbaijan was, had Karabakh under siege, um, that the Russians were at best equivocal and probably maybe tilting towards Azerbaijan. Um, and on the ground, um, I think the Karabakhis themselves were a bit slow to realize that this was the end. They were told that they'd better start negotiating um, pretty damn fast with Baku, but I think they were in denial until very, very recently. Um, and, uh, and that was costly to them. But obviously for the population, uh, they slowly ran out of supplies. Um, Azerbaijan defied an order from the International Court of Justice to open the corridor. Um, and in the, over the summer, lots and lots of dipl Western diplomacy telling Azerbaijan uh, not to do this, not to do a military assault, um, trying to encourage Karabakh-Baku talks. And it was really going down to the wire, which which would prevail. Would, 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 would some kind of Karabakh-Baku process get on its feet? And that would be enough for Azerbaijan or would they just go for it anyway? And I'm afraid September the 19th, they went for it anyway. They overwhelmed Karabakh pretty quickly, which was going to be obvious. And the key factor, obviously, again, was Russia. Russia stood down its peacekeepers. Um, they stood aside, so the Azerbaijani troops swarmed into the territory. I mean, even so, there were quite heavy military losses, several hundred on both sides. Um, but, um, and, but then on the political side, instead of blaming Baku, uh, Russia started blaming Yerevan for this and saying, well, it was your fault you abandoned Karabakh. What could you expect? And, and Pashinyan is to blame. He's been uh, abandoning his traditional military ally um, in, in Moscow. Suddenly, So suddenly we see this new axis um, between Azerbaijan and Russia, and we see the almost inevitable flight of the Karabakhis uh, from, from, from their homeland. Yeah, that's really helpful context. And Phil, if you, I know you feel free to add anything you want to that, but I think kind of given where we are, what are your concerns moving forward? Um, I mean, I guess one question I have is, you know, is this it? Um, Azerbaijan is one. It's been a great boon to Aliyev and he can portray himself as the leader who brought this territory back. Or are, you know, what is the prospect for the trajectory of this conflict more broadly? Like, I, I don't know how... Like yeah, are we do we are we can wipe our hands and and that's kind of it, or we think that this has the potential to to evolve into something more to include the end of Armenia. That I've heard that yesterday. Someone was saying within a year Armenia will disappear, and it was like what? And so it's 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 yeah. confusing if you can untangle some of that. I guess uh, I just add uh, a huge thanks to Tom, who really is the expert in my view on on the region, its complex history, and you know, just to underscore what he said, this, this is a tough neighborhood. I mean, we're talking about the South Caucasus, uh, Russia, complicated history, Iran to the south, uh, Turkey to the west, uh, you know, the Caspian, the resources it provided, uh, continues to provide to Azerbaijan, which, of course, as Tom pointed out, made possible the, the military growth and, and success Um that Azerbaijan had something that was being pointed out to Armenia over decades of efforts by the international community to help broker a resolution to this. Uh, I came into it rather late in, in the process as Assistant Secretary for Europe. Uh, we, of course, had the 2020 war that 
uh, we could see sort of coming uh, as the so-called Minsk group process through the OSCE uh, was making no progress at all. Um, that, of course, was in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, all three of the co-chair countries that have been involved in this process since uh, since 1994 uh, tried to broker peace. It was the Russians that were able to, uh, with their peacekeepers, come to a, a ceasefire, frankly, threatening both sides. Uh, and then, of course, Russia has failed to to keep the commitments of, of their peacekeepers. As, as Tom pointed out, uh, I brokered in the summer of 21, the exchange of uh, prisoners, Armenian prisoners, for some landmine maps uh, to help with the demining process that was important to Azerbaijan, obviously. I mean, really, this all comes down to questions of territorial integrity and sovereignty. I don't think this idea, and I hear it out there, that Armenia will disappear and cease to exist. I don't think that's at all uh, in the works. I think we now have the territorial integrity established uh, after this action by, by Azerbaijan. What we have to focus on, of course, is the humanitarian situation right now as, uh, as Karabakhis, uh, Armenians from the, the Karabakh area, seem to all be, be leaving. Um, Azerbaijan, of course, protesting that they aren't telling them to leave. They don't want them to leave. They want them to integrate. Uh, there's no trust on either side in this based on historic fears, concerns, realities, uh, particularly brutal history uh, in the region. And of course, uh, social media and the kinds of rumors that uh, that start uh, only foster that. So I think we continue to see a, a mass exodus into Armenia. In fact, Armenia today, uh, which has experienced uh, some strong economic growth, the tech sector and other things, I think is focused on its itself uh, and not Karabakh. And that may be the difference now uh, is that Prime Minister Pashinyan, uh, his government, his country can focus on their country, including absorbing those uh, ethnic Armenians from Karabakh who choose to come to Armenia. Uh, and I think the focus with the international community has to be on now pushing forward on a peace process that has been in place uh, since uh, since the 2021 uh, when Secretary Blinken asked me to, to work on this, uh, a window of opportunity, I think, that opened President of the European Council, uh, Charles Michel, convened Presidents Aliyev and, and Prime Minister Pashinyan. And that discussion, that dialogue, that effort to find some sort of uh, accommodation, uh, tense as it may be, I think is the key to a longer term security. I mean, look, the, the point about this, as it was in the Balkans and, and other uh, longstanding conflict areas in Eurasia and around the world, is you can't change geography. And geography matters. These people, as I've told them, have to live together. Uh, they have to find accommodation. Uh, they've got great opportunities if they do. Uh, just the discussion of uh, transport and infrastructure links uh, through that region, a uh, new focus uh, globally that's been discussed at the G20 and other places, uh, gateway to Central Asia. Uh, these are all opportunities. Uh, of course, there's a lot to get through there right now. The focus has to be on the humanitarian challenge. In, and we can come back to the humanitarian challenge in one second, but I want to ask both of you, what you made then of Aliyev's visit to uh, visit, uh, sorry, not Aliyev, Erdogan's visit to Aliyev and the kind of back padding um, and support that he gave to President Aliyev and obviously a politically important place in Noctavan. is Was that foreboding? Does that give you pause? Does it give you worry that, that they would, again, through the use of force, try to reintegrate that territory? Because um, as my understanding is that you would have to go through Armenian territory in order to link that up with, with Azerbaijan. Are you worried about that? Could you it's important to remember that Nachavan is part of Azerbaijan. Uh, right. The critical part, it has a lot of uh, meaning to Aliyev and his family. Uh, and of course, Erdogan is is always ready to to show support for that. The issue of, of a corridor, some sort of uh, transit link. There was a Soviet era railway uh, that was pulled up. Um, and part of the discussions in the peace process had been how to restart that. 
rebuild the railway. It always boils down then to questions about sovereignty. Azerbaijan remains very clear, at least in their statements, that they're not expecting territorial sovereignty. They just want secure access uh, between uh, Machavan, uh, that exclave, if you will, that part of Azerbaijan and the rest of Azerbaijan. The Armenians obviously concerned because of the incredible lack of trust uh, that this would be some step toward uh, partitioning them. I think the key will be uh, to focus on uh, technology in terms of operating such a, uh, a transit corridor. Uh, you don't have to get into complex discussions about sovereignty uh, to do something like that, particularly with the help of, of the international community. And that's the kind of thing they should be talking about in a constructive manner, uh, taking a, a very pragmatic view of what this is. So I think the the fears are always going to be there. There's nothing that will be done to resolve that completely. But I do think uh, Pashinyan and, and Aliyev uh, have an understanding. And the more they can get together with the help of others in the international community and talk these things through and find solutions uh, that meet the needs of both sides can actually benefit both countries and, and the whole region. Um. I'm I'm not so optimistic. I'm I'm afraid. Well, I'm not saying you're completely optimistic, Phil. But I think what's what you haven't mentioned so far is is the Russian factor here. Um, there was obviously this meeting between Aliyev and Erdogan where they talked about what they call the Zangazor corridor. Armenians called the region Sunik. But also quite recently, I, I can't remember exactly when there was the meeting in Sochi between Erdogan and Putin, in which I think I'm pretty sure they also discussed this issue. And if you look at the November 2020 ceasefire document, which has pretty much been shot to pieces, but the last point <laughs> is about unblocking transport routes, and it explicitly states that Russian FSB border guards should guard this route. And what I hear is it's the Azerbaijanis now pressing the Armenians to accept Russian border guards, um, which is you know a strange turn of events, but that's what's going on. But this is obviously part of a deal between Baku and Moscow is is that this is a kind of shared i mean i i, I call these three three now the the kind of axis of illiberalism in, in the region <laughs> um russia azerbaijan turkey that's what we're dealing with what the armenians in particular are dealing with and so i think what we're seeing is a shared agenda there from those three countries to have a corridor across armenia where the armenians don't have control it's the russian and it's russian border guards it's only about 30 or 40 kilometers and suddenly it's russia azerbaijan little bit of Armenia that the Armenians don't really control, Nakhchivan, which also connects to Iran, and then across to Turkey. Um, and suddenly you've got a new a new corridor. And of course, the Armenians have to be worried about this. And the West has to be worried about this now. And of course, the big question is, if the Armenians don't agree, and there are kind of demands, how, how far do those demands go? Um, and the other thing we, we haven't mentioned yet is um, Aliyev is now becoming the irredentist. He's 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 made the speech when he talks about Western Azerbaijan, which by which he means, you know, pre nineteen eighteen Armenia, where a lot of Azerbaijanis used to live. And he says the Western Azerbaijanis, descendants of people who fled Armenia, uh, must have the right of return. Um, and this is pretty menacing. Uh, obviously, he's kind of stopped a little bit short of of saying that you know um this is our territory we must seize it but the language is extremely menacing so there's this sword hanging over southern armenia we know that the armenian military is not strong um and so this is obviously the next big uh, issue in which the west is obviously going to be backing the armenians saying sure we have a we have a route we have a corridor but it needs to be under armenian control it needs to be part of a bigger international transport route um, and we've got these three countries um, who, who basically want to do a deal. Um, and over the heads of as you rightly point out, Tom, I mean, Russia has an interest there. They clearly want to keep uh, a good corridor open to Iran, uh, who certainly plays a role in, in arming them uh, and, and supplying them uh, partially for their war against Ukraine. Uh, and that's a key factor there. Russia likes uh instability russia likes uh frozen conflicts uh, and stirring the pot particularly in that region and as you've pointed out uh, we've seen so many instances here where 
Russia has completely failed to, uh, to keep its commitments and in fact uh, exacerbated the, the problems. Uh, it's uh, an unfortunate reality that you know, the, the Minsk group and the process there was an area where there was cooperation with Russia for many years, uh, even as we had strains and stresses in the US-Russia and the European-Russia relationship. And that, of course, is completely uh, broken down now. Thank you again for appearing uh, on the, on our show and talking about something that's so complex for most people. And so, my question is going to try to pull us out of the out of the twenty foot level up to a five hundred foot level, if I can, for a lot of our listeners who are new to this issue um, and they have a, a a passing understanding based on what they just read in the paper. I've been. The people have asked me, they said, well, considering all the history here, and Tom, you went back to uh, you had in your opening remarks how far back the history of this goes uh, and the twists and turns. A lot of people say, well, Jim, um, who's in the right here? I mean, who 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 owns this? Who is a, you know, who do we support? Who who's is the, the good guy? guy? Who's the bad guy? And I say, well, I don't know. I said, it's, 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 I don't think you can reduce this to good guys and bad guys. There's a lot of history here. But mm -hmm. if someone asked you that question, Tom, and then to Phil, mm -hmm. who, you know, we, you know, who would you, how would you answer that? Uh, who's in the right here? Or really, that's just not an appropriate question. We're having right. to deal with a humanitarian <laughs> yeah, issue right I now. Mean, and... I mean, this is one of those conflicts, obviously, where there are victims and perpetrators on both sides. And, some, and you know, suddenly the victims turn things around and become perpetrators themselves. So it's a bit hard to answer this question. Clearly, uh the armenians are, are the victims at the moment and i'm personally feel very very sad because you know i know people who are now fleeing karabakh and my i went to karabakh 10 times my host there who i was to you know spent many hours sitting in his garden drinking in his wine talking talk, talking about the world he's now lost lost that home lost that garden and he's now a refugee in in yerevan and you know that makes it very personal for me when i when when i hear from someone like that um and he's a great guy and and he certainly was not a perpetrator but but um amongst many armenians you know in the 1990s they um they broke out of karabakh they they um committed atrocities they occupied armenian they occupied azerbaijani land and and you know so azerbaijan is also a, a country in which suffered mass trauma um you know that they got on their feet as an independent country only to be to lose large bits of it almost immediately to war and to armenians i mean i guess the kind of bigger point is 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 that um if for large parts of history i mean azerbaijanis have intermingled a lot um in the caucasus they've been mixed marriage they share a lot of culture together so this is all about politics and war and insecurity it's, it's not about ancient hatreds for sure um it's all about you know when the imperial overlord weakens or leaves and suddenly these two people are facing off against one another and no one knows where the new borders are um they inevitably start fighting um and you know just one last point on this is is the unfortunate factor of diaspora nationalism the the uh, a lot of armenians uh uh, abroad who were the descendants of Ottoman Armenians victims of the 1915 genocide adopted this cause almost as a kind of compensation for their losses against the Turks they saw the Azerbaijanis as the new Turks and they kind of welcomed conquest of territories and victories as a kind of payback for 1915 and and so it was if we're going back in history this is kind of perpetuating a cycle of suffering the uh, Armenians lost in 1915 and not the Karabakhis, who weren't obviously in that part. They were they were a part of the Russian Empire, not the Ottoman Empire. But a lot of people from outside pushing this very aggressive narrative onto the Karabakh conflict. That's really important to understand that that broader context. Uh, when I was in government, of course, the focus was on trying to play a constructive role, engaging bilaterally as as the United States. Um, with uh, both Armenia and Azerbaijan, and, and frankly with Georgia as well, the third uh, of the, the South Caucasus countries that uh, uh, can play a useful role and I think tries to here uh, offering its uh, its services uh, to, to both countries to help uh, in negotiations or uh, efforts because it affects, affects them as well, if not directly. 
you read the sort of classics like Ali and Nino, the, you know, a, a story, a novel that uh, has great resonance uh, throughout the region and, and sort of romantic vision of, of what was, say, even Baku, a very multi-ethnic place where Armenians, ethnic Armenians played a, a very large role. Um, you know, that was a time, frankly, of broad prosperity, of course, affected by uh, imperial powers, Russia, others. And uh, it's a place, frankly, where the United States, not having that historical baggage, can play a role. As Tom points out, uh, diaspora tend to then reflect uh, and, and engage um, and sometimes distort, even with good intention. Uh, and that tends to add to the challenge. Um, it's very much like the Balkans, who many people will remember, uh, and those problems uh, carry over to today. Um, the people of the Balkans uh, were not necessarily always at, at uh, war with each other. It was a legacy of uh, empires and borders, uh, and that remains the problem today, and a focus on sovereignty and uh, why the idea of integrating, uh, you know, what we've seen, say, in other parts of Europe, particularly Western Europe, where the European Union has has uh, allowed countries like France and Germany that fought three wars in less than a century, major destructive wars, uh, have been able to actually become close allies and economic partners. Um, all of that can be a vision, I hope, for the people of the South Caucasus. Uh, there's a lot to get through now. I, I do try to be optimistic. I'm not involved in the in the process officially anymore, but at the, the Wilson Center, where I chair the uh, Global Europe program, uh, we try to focus on not just analysis, but uh, solutions and recommendations for, uh, frankly, both ends of, of Pennsylvania Avenue here in Washington. Um, I think there is an opportunity if we can get past the humanitarian challenges right now to press both countries to, to work on this peace agreement they had, and that means and going back to the point about the uh, Zangazur corridor, that there, there can't be more major disruptions. These things have to be negotiated and talked about and worked on together. Uh, you know, it's a, it's hard in the caucuses, as Tom knows, uh, to talk about uh, conflict or, uh, or any sort of uh, concessions um, or uh, even... Uh, even accommodation uh, is, a, is a difficult word for them to swallow, uh, given the history and, and what they perceive as their own politics. That's what we have to keep pushing on. Uh, and perhaps there's an opportunity moving ahead. Well, Phil, if I could just follow up real quick, uh, because of your role in the government and dealing with uh, the U.S. position on Nagorno-Karabakh for over many years. I mean, this is, as you pointed out, it's a long, this is a long burning uh, problem and issue. Has the U.S. policy, Democrat and Republican, all the various secretaries of state, has our approach to this issue been pretty consistent? Um, have we had a kind of a North Star that we always followed in terms of developing a diplomatic approach to a particular crisis or thinking about it in the long term? Or has it kind of jogged up and down depending on who was the Secretary of State or who was the president? How consistent have we been in terms of policy? I think actually it's been pretty consistent. As I said, I first um, got involved in this in a meaningful way, uh, you know, more recently uh, after the 2020 war broke out. But looking back on the history of, of our engagement, um, we tried to use our role as a, as a balanced country that wanted to have positive relations with both Armenia and Azerbaijan as they emerged from the disintegrating Soviet Union, um, use that, that ability to play uh, an honest broker, to listen to both sides, not to be afraid to criticize both sides. And over time, we certainly have. I've had tough conversations with, uh, with leaders on, on both sides of the uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. But I do think there's been a, a pretty good consistency. Um, we tried very hard in, in 2000, uh, um, 2001, the uh, early months of the George W. Bush administration, and Secretary Powell actually convened in our role as then the uh, leading the, the co-chair process of the so-called Mintz Group uh, down in Key West, Florida, a big peace conference that was supposed to bring uh, a resolution to the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, part of the conflict. 
And as it dragged on from uh, what was hoped to be just a couple of days into a couple of weeks, it ended without a solution. And at that time, the former president, Leah, the, the father of the current president, uh, they could not come to, to an agreement. And so, you know, 20 odd years later, we still have this problem. And the U.S., I think, still can play a role. Secretary Blinken very much saw the window of opportunity that he believed uh, had been created uh, with Charles Michel convening the leaders uh, in an EU-led process, and that's what we wanted to support. Uh, I think we'll continue to call out uh, steps that we think are wrong. We'll continue to call for uh, an end to violence. There is no military solution to the long-term uh, needs of, of both countries and the whole region as a whole. Uh, and right now, I think the, the focus will be on assisting with uh, the humanitarian challenges as uh, as these tens of thousands of uh, ethnic Armenians from Karabakh mostly move into Armenia and then uh, trying to support the peace process again uh, with the support of the EU uh, and other like-minded countries and uh, a hope that Russia won't continue to try to, to scuttle current efforts uh, because they see disruption and uh, unresolved conflict as being in their interest. I want to pick up on that, Tom. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your expectations are for Russia-Armenia relations? I mean, this is really seems significant. And, it, you know, even before this bout of violence, you had Pashinyan questioning Armenia's relationship. You had the Armenian exercises with the U.S. I mean, is this a really a uh, a significant shift in Russia's approach to this region? And so what do you expect about Russia-Armenia relations? And do you see the potential for a deepening axis of illiberalism that you yeah. called it? Like, I mean, are Turkey and Russia going to find common cause and actually be on the same side of this issue? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, that is the fear. I mean, I think the immediate fear, the immediate crisis we, we need to be watching next is, is what happens in Armenia itself because you've got um you know there's a widespread anger against Pashinyan the the prime minister for losing Karabakh and indeed he's made many he made many mistakes um in the 2020 war run up to the 2020 war and since um and there's a widespread anger against him being the, the man who lost his Karabakh obviously he's you know it's a bit more complicated than that but you know um he's one of the people on the charge sheet um so you've got You've got people in Armenia angry with him. You've got tens of thousands of Karabakhis who've lost their home, you know, who have got nothing to lose, who may be out on the streets demanding his resignation. Um, you've got bits of the security establishment in Yerevan, which was still some of them a bit close to Russia, uh, angry about this. And then you've got Russia actively instigating uh, regime change. You know, you you know, um, you can't get it clearer from remarks by people like Dmitry. I was just going to bring that up, the tweet yeah. that he issued. That was really remarkable. I don't know. Um, do you want to tell people basically? I mean, it was a not so thinly veiled thread of like, this is what happens to people yeah. who betray us yeah, or something. Exactly. Along this is what happens if, if, if yeah. you know, the people who don't value, appreciate the importance of a military alliance with Russia. And I think Margarita Simonyan, who's a kind of more Russia than Armenia, <laughs> saying, you know, people will be out on the streets. Um, and it was it was a kind of um, supposed to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and that so, goes, if I can just remind the listeners, you know, Armenia is a member of this, the CSTO. Right. Um, and, and of course, for most Armenians, frankly, I think the CSTO has been seen to be an empty shell. Right. Uh, they did nothing to help the Armenians to, when they were attacked. Um, and Armenia has since focused on turning more westward, uh, looking at, at other options. Right. But Tom, so the, that, the that raises one question, though, is what do Armenians, the public, so obviously Pashinyan has taken a stark stance against Moscow, but are Armenians not dissatisfied and upset that Russia didn't come to their aid in, in this conflict? I mean, what is what do you think is the Armenian sentiment towards sure. Moscow? I think there's a, obviously going to be a feeling of betrayal by Russia. And if anything, oh, that's maybe the one thing that will help Pashinyan is that they, people feel angry at at, uh, at him, they feel doubly angry at Russia. Um, and of course, there's some anger with the West as well. But, but you know, um, part of this shift to the West, uh, which you mentioned, Andrea, is the deployment, we haven't mentioned this yet, of 
European monitors for the first time earlier this year um, in Armenian border regions, unarmed mission, civilian, um, well, um, a you know a security mission, but but not an armed mission of, of EU monitors, analogous to the one in Georgia, um, and that's huge development. You know, the first deployment of EU monitors in in a, a kind of Russian allied, supposedly Russian allied country. I guess the dilemma for the Armenians is is they get they uh, they feel the love and support from the US and from parts of Europe now who can provide money and political support but they haven't you know apart from a few monitors um the boots on the ground are all are all russian in, in armenia you know they've got the military base they've got the border guards and you know and and you know what do you do when your main security patron uh says that you've betrayed it it's an interesting thing to to look at too in terms of uh, russia's role in azerbaijan as we talked about earlier in the conversation uh you know, I think Aliyev has to be asking himself uh, how long and how does he feel about Russian troops continuing to have a presence in Azerbaijan. Uh, he was very emphatic uh, at the time of the ceasefire that he had insisted uh, that the peacekeeping presence, the Russian military presence, uh, was limited to five years. Well, you know, coming up on 2024, 2025, then around the corner, uh, want to take bets on... Uh, where Russian troops will be uh, after that five years has expired. It's an interesting uh, question. But you all were talking, uh, Tom, you were talking about the presence of monitors and those in Armenia. U.S. also sent, didn't the U.S. send some troops there to do an exercise with the Armenian military? I, I was, was that a surprise? Is that, I, as I remember, we don't have that much of a exercise relationship with, with Armenia. And then yeah, the, I mean, as this crisis is potting up, suddenly the U.S. has boots on the ground there. Right. I thought that was kind of unusual, or am I absolutely wrong? No, no, I think I think it is unusual. I mean, there has been some some cooperation with NATO over the years, but yeah, it, it is unusual. But of course, it was a very small training yeah. exercise, and and I'm afraid uh, may in one sense have done more harm than good. It may have raised expectations um, too high amongst the Armenian public that the U.S. is you know there to help them. Uh, militarily, which is obviously not the case. It, it's very hard to, uh, certainly was a challenge to continuously try to explain to Armenians that uh, their, their inkling to, you know, turn away from the CSTO did not mean they were going to become NATO members in the next uh, foreseeable future, or that the U.S. was suddenly going to put boots on the ground uh, in, in some meaningful way. That's that's just clearly not in the cards. Um, and uh, and that does worry with expectations. I think we want to you know, recognize and, and uh, show an interest and support Armenia's sovereign decision. This is uh, you know Armenia as its own country uh, deciding as a democracy uh, how they want to conduct their foreign relations, how they want to uh, work with others uh, in terms of security and. And other factors and that's one of the, the big developments that sort of gets lost uh, um, you know forced through the trees questions uh, when you're looking at the, at the region more broadly and where it's going and worth pointing out too just as a reminder that Karabakh Nagorno-Karabakh whatever you decide to call the region was never a part of Armenia proper and and Pashinyan's been pretty clear about that uh, support uh, for the ethnic Armenians living there. Karabakh had a, a strong influence on Armenia, uh, but this is not a case where that was taken out or, or taken from uh, Armenia. It was always considered, uh, certainly since the breakup of the Soviet Union, a part of the, the territory of, of Azerbaijan. Well, I, I I had heard that as well. I think that's added to some of the confusion of people who are trying to find good guys and bad guys. You know, and they hear that and they go, "Oh, wait a minute." But just back on the exercise, um, I, uh, I I'm just uh, Andre and I would just look exchange glances at that uh, the idea that we would have uh, mm -hmm. thrown U.S. boots on the ground, even a small uh, group of boots, uh, in the middle of all that was happening because the Certainly, the expectation and the signal that sends is huge in Armenia. I would have thought there would be parades in the streets and a feeling of being rescued by the Americans and this type of thing. I'm just really surprised that we would have 
you know, done that. I mean, that seems to be an amateur kind of thing, unless there was some other big, big uh, goal the U.S. had in mind by doing that. It just seemed so out of place. But um, those boots are now gone, I guess. Um, and it was, uh, a, it was an exercise, um, if I remember correctly, it was called Eagle Partner, and it had been long in the planning. Uh, you know, I think it was maybe. Um, not even sure how many, but I think there were about 175 Armenian troops. They were the Armenian Peacekeeping Brigade, um, and it was to help them, uh, you know, with their work to conforming to sort of NATO standards in terms of participating in peacekeeping operations. Um, so I think it was a relatively short, short-term uh, thing. And the Russians, of course, weren't weren't happy about it. Uh, it was something like 80, 85. Uh, U.S. soldiers, um, really a training mission, again, long planned. I think it lasted about a week, 10 days. Um, and uh, the kind of thing that uh, we do with lots of countries, um, usually through National Guard troops that are right. uh, partnered with, uh, right. with the various countries. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, and and you and I worked through a lot of that kind of thing with <laughs> Europe and PFP and all that type of thing. But, yeah. but for me, I've always found that uh, when the Americans showed up, no matter what their job was, no matter how many, uh, it was seen as a as a as a big deal and as a big signal. And uh, I uh, I'm, I'm glad they were there helping the peacekeeping forces, and and I'm glad that uh, they're gone now. But uh, but when that uniform is seen on the streets of a town, it really um, sends a signal. And I, I just uh, I wonder if we'll do that again. I don't know. Like we're getting a little bit towards the end of the conversation. And I just want to hear from both of you kind of like the things that you're watching um, in terms of like understanding how this conflict will or won't develop. What are you really watching? And then I've got one final question on kind of Russia's role in the region. But first, I think it's helpful just to focus people in on the types of indicators that you both are following closely. Yeah, well, if why don't I jump in? I mean, um, I mean, clearly, uh, for me, the issue on the ground, I mean, Karabakh, most Karabakhers have left is, will anyone stay? I think a few people will stay because there's the Russian base there um, in, in the town of Stepanakert. Um, and also the Azerbaijanis will be keen to have a little shop window and prove that some Armenians want to be part of their their country, um, but is that enough to kind of build a little Armenian community within Azerbaijan? I'm 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 very skeptical. I mean, obviously, what one the hope was always that this conflict would be would be resolved um, peacefully, and this would be a kind of bridge to Armenia Azerbaijan reconciliation and and to dropping all the hate rhetoric, particularly on the Azerbaijani side. Um, but I'm afraid, obviously, the way it's ended. Um, makes that much more difficult. It makes much more difficult for our um, Armenia, uh, Azerbaijan bilateral treaty, which is being talked about. Um, right now, I guess the question is, is is US and Europe talking about sending a UN mission? Um, and um, the um, there's supposed to be a meeting of the two leaders, um, Pashinyan and Aliyev in Spain on October 5th. And I guess that's going to be uh, contingent the Armenians um, participation will be contingent on uh, on that UN mission going but I, th I think broadly a feeling of uh, uh, of betrayal by isn't too strong a word by Azerbaijan who made so many assurances that they weren't going to do this and so a, a kind of scrambling on the policy side is how to make Azerbaijan uh, accountable for this um, because it sets a, obviously sets a terrible precedent for also for all sorts of other conflicts. It, it, if you know, after years of negotiation, suddenly one side just resorts to uh, to force and rolls over everything. I, I agree with Tom. I think we need to look at how much access the international community can have uh, during the negotiations uh, over the past year or so. Um, the key focus was uh, was about rights and securities of all people, but certainly the rights and securities of the ethnic Armenians living in Karabakh, which was acknowledged to be part of Azerbaijan, and how you could, uh, could show that. And I regularly would uh, underscore to the Azerbaijanis that it was important to have some kind of international 
presence, engagement, monitoring, what you call it, uh, doesn't really matter, but it gives them the ability to to show what's really happening. If they have a positive story to tell, which they, of course, uh, claim they do, uh, then let's see that. And uh, they will say, oh, but it's a violation of our sovereignty. No, it's not. You're making a sovereign decision over this territory, which is acknowledged to be part of Azerbaijan, to allow in, uh, invite in a uh, presence. And I think the UN could play a, a perfectly good role here um, uh, to see what's happening on the ground and to to underscore uh, you know, the rights and securities are being preserved, or if they're not, where the, where the challenges are. That's going to be, I think, a very key thing. Uh, I do say we need to watch uh, what the Russians are doing uh, in terms of their troops in both Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, certainly keep an eye on, on Iran uh, and what's happening south of that border. Uh, I know the Azerbaijanis do. Uh, there's a, a long-standing conflict there. You talk about ethnic groups, a tremendous number of ethnic Azerbaijanis in Iran. Not territorial claims, but that can lead to, uh, to concerns uh, about that too. Or the the Iran issue, I I, ha I do have one last question, but just to say a couple more words on the Iran angle, because I mean, Iran and uh, Azerbaijan, some they've had quite a lot of heated exchanges recently with expulsions and other things. And I don't know all of the specifics, but I know that's been a tense relationship for the last you know, while now, um, how, 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 what is your sense of how the Iranians are watching this? I mean, Phil, you touched on it a little bit, given the ethnic Azerbaijanis that are in Iran, but what, what is your sense of Iran's role in this? And are, or, or, or are, do they welcome now this corridor to link, you know, that they can now have a more direct link with Russia as they're looking to deepen their partnership with the Kremlin? Well, certainly that's an ongoing, uh, the, the Russia-Iran uh, axis is is one that they will continue to do. I, I think the Iranians uh, have a lot of other things on their plate and probably aren't interested in provoking any sort of uh, direct conflict with Azerbaijan, which, as we've seen, uh, has a pretty strong punch, uh, given their military growth and the support of Turkey. Um, so something you have to watch. It's, again, part of the the whole uh, complex puzzle of the region, uh, tough neighborhood. Uh, but I think uh, the most important thing in the coming days, not just the, the humanitarian angle to this, but seeing that the leaders can, can get together. The more they can sit down together, difficult as it may be, uh, and talk, and they have a precedence for this, whether it's on the margins of uh, the European political community meeting in uh, Spain, uh, or in other opportunities, or go to neighboring Georgia, uh, where the Georgians will happily facilitate an opportunity. Um, that's the kind of dialogue that needs to happen. The, the two countries now sort of set with their borders and their, their uh, futures ahead of them uh, need to be talking about that and, and work towards a, a peace agreement so that they can at least declare we as two countries are at peace. Now we have to look at implementing uh, that piece and, and how we can pursue a sort of reconciliation, which will take a long time. But I mean, a couple of words from me on Iran. The, the Iranians are worried about their northern border. They don't want um, Azerbaijan and Turkey to link up and, as it were, seal their northern border. Um, so they, which means that they're very keen for the Armenians to keep control of southern Armenia as their kind of northern frontier um so that's they've they, they've made some warnings that you know that they would um be pretty antagonistic against any um azerbaijani turkish move on on zangazur so-called so but you know what those threats mean I, I i really couldn't say all right now final question and i know we're pressing up against uh our, the end here but so maybe if you want to just keep it tight, but, you know, to what degree is this a bellwether for for future conflict in the region? And just thinking of, we're talking about Russia distracted, degraded by the war in Ukraine, right? They weren't present in this, and that created a window of opportunity that Azerbaijan chose to seize on. Um, to what extent is this going to be, are we going to see these shifting dynamics across the region? And is this going to, I don't know, thinking of Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, I don't, whatever it is, 
you know, is this a, a, a warning sign that we're in for some tumultuous times as Russia is forced to recede from the region? Well, for, for one for one thing, I don't think, I think what's happened is that this shows that Russia hasn't withdrawn from the region. Russia is a weaker power in the region, but it's it's power to, even as a weaker power, to intervene and disrupt because it doesn't fear the consequences as it may be used to pre-Ukraine is is there and 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 possibly even stronger. Um, let me late raise one scenario which would stir up a big hornet's nest. I'll try and be as quick as I can, but I'm talking to someone um, today about this a scenario which would have sounded crazy a year ago, but we know that the Georgian dream government is moving away from the West, um, you know, or drifting away from the West and, and you know, has a better relationship with, with Russia. Um, um, and, um, but one scenario is, is that the Abkhaz are worried about in Abkhazia is that the, is that the Russians and the Georgians repeat the scenario we just saw with Azerbaijan and Karabakh, that the, um, the Russians stand down their troops in Abkhazia, the Georgians uh, pre-arranged operation come in, retake Abkhazia in return for uh, Georgia giving up on its EU and NATO aspirations. But of course, the Georgian public will be so delighted with this great victory and, and, and liberation so-called of Abkhazia that they will forgive the Georgian dream government. Sounds like a crazy scenario but you heard not it at all we're yeah. nodding oh, along i mean no yeah, it's it makes sense. yeah no it's really and it's, it's remarkable diplomats nightmares uh you know i think georgia has been long focused on regaining the 20 percent of their country that's been occupied by russia since 2008 and then you see that as the beginning of vladimir putin's uh efforts to re-establish empire i don't buy into a lot of these uh call them conspiracies or uh other fantasies but what it does underscore is that this is a tough neighborhood and Russia's not going away. Uh, geography matters. And uh, that's a reality they're going to have to learn to live with. Uh, I think there are structures in place. If, if Armenia and Azerbaijan can come through what is, you know, certainly a very tough couple of weeks now, really a tough uh, couple of years, um, and some would say decades, of course, uh, and forge uh, a piece that will take decades more to actually uh, work out. Just remember, you know, France and Germany, uh, England and Spain, uh, look at history and the wars that were fought between countries like that uh, and, uh, and the kind of relationships uh, that emerge later on. There are opportunities there. It uh, takes uh, a vision, it takes, frankly, optimism uh, and I'm sure there'll be bumps in the road up and down. Uh, for now, I'm focused on how the ethnic Armenians uh, from Karabakh, remaining in Karabakh, uh, will do in terms of the humanitarian situation and uh, hopefully seeing a, a movement in that peace process. Uh, so lots to stay tuned for. I'm going to take your optimism. And anytime we can yeah. end a Brussels sprouts on an optimistic note, I'll take it. So. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. But thank you both. I mean, this is a complicated, I think you have answered a lot of people's questions. It's been extremely informative. Um, and so I thank you both for taking the time yeah. to do this. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I, I think we'll be talking again. Thank, thank you. you both. I'd look forward to it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.